0: It's uh, very nice to see the people who are here, and I know we have a, another group that's online. It's really uh, a pleasure for me to introduce uh, Christian Danielson um, today, who since um, October uh, 2013 has been the Director General for Enlargement and uh, Neighborhood Policy of the European Commission. He's a long-time Swedish uh, diplomat, but has spent uh, much of the last decade working in Brussels. Um, he has a deep knowledge of most, if not all, of the countries in this uh, very broad portfolio that uh, is covered by both the enlargement process and by uh, the European neighborhood policy. And um, the format today is we're going to let him speak for 15 or 20 minutes, and then um, my two colleagues, uh, Benjamin Haddad uh, to my right and Charles Davidson to the left here, will make a few comments, and then we'll go to the group here for questions. And I see we've got uh, a number of people in the crowd, including a former ambassador to Georgia, uh with us today so it should be a, a good discussion
1: Christian thank you thank you very much and thank you for giving me this opportunity to uh, to discuss with you uh, what I'm doing as my sort of bread and butter which is to uh, to work on partners uh, to the south and to the east what I thought I would do today nevertheless is to start up by saying a couple of words on on the importance of uh, U.S. Europe relations and how substantial they are, and uh, and from there then go over and discuss a bit what that what that means in concrete terms when it comes to, in particular, uh, the Western Balkans, and uh, also perhaps two words about Ukraine, and then I would also like to say a couple of words about what is one of the challenges for, for us today in Europe, but I presume it's also something that is discussed here in the United States, which is the issue of migration slash refugees, and how we are addressing that one also in this context. But I think nevertheless it's good to start up by, by just uh, reflecting a bit on how, 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 how close we are, how much uh, US and Europe share deep, long-lasting relations relations which are based on on similar values, and also relations which are there because of the role that we play globally. And it's something that is, uh, I feel very much myself, and I presume many does, that it has also to do with the personal relations that exist, the big exchange of people between Europe and the United States, Uh, the way that we are consuming various things, uh, everything from films to books to culture. And, and that is therefore no no, no surprise that this is uh, has led to a very strong strategic alliance uh, which uh, I would argue have uh, at least a couple of elements which are fundamentally important. One is the economy. Uh, we are our biggest uh, uh, investors. We are our biggest uh, trading partners. Uh, when it comes to Jobs, uh, 15 million jobs in the Europe and in the U.S. are, according to what I have learned, uh, directly dependent on us together. And uh, the fact that uh, we are the economies we are uh, is probably going to point in the direction that this will this will continue. So the economy is one of them. The other one, I think, which is important also to. To have in mind, and that comes very close to what, what I'm doing on my daily daily work, is the whole issue of security stability, where uh, our relations have been fundamental. I mean, I don't know, go to back to to the Second World War and thereafter, but of course that is that is clearly there and underpinning it, the uh, the alliance and and uh, and U.S. role in the alliance and the way that that has worked in order to underpin our cooperation and strengthening Europe and making Europe moving forward. And, uh, and also together today, more prominently, we are working together in issues such as the counter-terrorism and, and defense more more prominently. And I think it's important in that context to recognize that although the alliance is the essential element when it comes to everything that has to do with security and defense, The European Union, as such, is uh, is a global security provider. And uh, I'm going to come to that a bit when I'm discussing Western Balkan. But looking on it just on terms of missions that we are out there today, uh, the, the military and civilian missions on the ground for that purpose from the European Union today are altogether 15. It's everything from fighting the pirates outside Somalia, to uh, looking after the stability of uh, Bosnia to uh, looking on the uh, towards the uh, territories not under control of Georgia uh, in, in Georgia uh, uh, where we also have a mission, uh, two missions in Mali and in, in other places. Altogether five thousand soldiers and policemen are active in that in that context. And, of course, it's important also to recognize that uh, Europe is the closest partner to uh, the U.S. when it comes to fighting Daesh. Uh, This is a real issue for us. Terrorism is something that we are suffering from. I'm a Swede. It's only three weeks ago that we had a terrorist attempt in Stockholm. And, uh, And that was very emotional for me. And if you look around in Europe today, there is a common understanding that terrorism is something that needs to be addressed, and it comes out of Bataclan in Paris, it comes out of the metro bombing in Brussels, it comes out of what happened in Nice, and it comes out of what happened in Berlin. And there we stand together, and we stand together in what is happening in in Syria in this context, and we stand together in trying to fight this in in close cooperation. And finally, I would also like to point in this context to uh, Europe's role, in the broader context when it comes to security stability uh, in providing the soft instruments Mm -hmm. where humanitarian assistance and development aid are essential. And I'm saying this just in order to land on what what I'm doing because very much of what we are doing has to do with these elements. And I think Western Balkan is uh, one telling example. Uh, We went in together Uh, in the 90s in order to stop a terrible war. Uh, Led to the Dayton Peace Peace Accord and also led to the intervention in Kosovo. And since then, we have worked together in order to provide for the stabilization and the development of the Western Balkan. And I would probably argue that what has been the anchor in that process, a very essential anchor, complemented by the efforts by the United States, has been the perspective for the Western Balkan countries to become members of the European Union, the enlargement process. And that is the policy that we are pursuing when it comes to these countries today. Uh, It is a policy which by definition takes time because uh, uh, the whole whole object of it is to uh, help the countries concerned in their reform efforts in putting into place what is needed and called for in order to fully take up the role as members of the European Union. And that boils down to issues such as rule of law, democratic institution, functioning judiciary, fighting corruption, fighting international organized crime. But it also boils down to the need to do the necessary economic reforms, moving out of uh, a model, economic model, which in those countries have been very much uh, um, based on remittances and consumption, and move over to an economic model which is based on uh, export and investment. And all of that is fundamental changes of the societies and by definition that takes time now we are we are very much into that on a daily basis uh, we do it in various forms but one thing is clear and comes together for all of the countries concerned and that is um, clear roadmaps on the reforms agreed with the countries and I don't go into the technicalities, but it takes the form of uh, uh, what we call fundamentals first, which means exactly what I mentioned, rule of law, fight against corruption, international organized crime, etc., etc. and the economic reform elements. And then depending on where the countries are in the process, uh, they are either into formal negotiations or not, and I can explain, exp- go into the details of it if anybody's interested. Uh, but it's a fairly elaborate process, and uh, and I think that for the countries who are in it, they they sense this being essential in order for them to be able to handle the reforms and move forward in the reform efforts. So that's where we are in the Western Balkan. We are underpinning this with a substantive assistance, and this is both assistance in order to help them to build up the necessary political or administrative structures, uh, public administrative reform and everything that comes with it, but also uh, help them to build up the necessary economic infrastructure, everything from roads, transport, to functional custom services, but also looking into issues such as the, how the financial market functions and building up the necessary institutions for that, for that purpose. So that is where we are in the, that's the process. Uh, What does it look like in terms of progress? Well, given the fact that this is difficult, there should be no surprise that this goes uh, steps forward and then holds and sometimes also step backwards and then moving forward again. But looking back in a sort of taking a little, slightly longer perspective, it is quite impressive the reforms that has happened in the Western Balkan. It's clear that much more needs to be done and it's also clear that uh, it is difficult political decisions that needs to be taken by the countries concerned. And right now, for instance, we are in a very interesting uh, process in Albania with a fundamental reform of judiciary, key hmm. for getting economic progress, key for letting loose the potential of creating jobs and growth in that country, key for fighting corruption, But there should be no surprise that that is not a kind of of reform that is uh, taken with enthusiasm from everybody. And there are strong strong, uh, elements that are are putting brakes and trying to put brake on it. Similarly, in Serbia, we have seen quite substantial reforms of the economy uh, when it comes to moving it exactly in the direction of an economy that works on the basis of, of investments and exports. But, of course, there are monopolistic structures that are difficult to handle and that needs to be addressed, and but nevertheless are politically difficult from that angle. And then we have substantive political issues that is going to take time to address, one of them being the relations between Kosovo and Serbia, where a dialogue is ongoing, and a di- that's a dialogue that is difficult for Kosovo and difficult for Serbia, but both agree and know that it's essential in order to be able to move forward on the European path and becoming a members of the European Union. And similarly, there is a political also challenge in the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, where uh, uh, clearly there are issues as uh, regards the next steps in forming the next government of the elections, which are tricky and complicated but where also the parties know that it's essential to find a way forward in order to be able to address and come forward in the, in the, um, the path towards the European Union. Finally, one aspect of, of Western Balkan, uh, and that is also something which uh, I think the U.S. and Europe very much looks the same on it, the importance of the regional cooperation between the countries concerned. That boils down to the legacy of the past, that boils down to the conflicts that were there only 23 years ago. And here we are working with the U.S. and with other partners very hard in order to help the countries concerned to move forward in that regional cooperation. In concrete terms, what we're talking about is infrastructure. We're talking about economic integration. We're talking about youth exchanges. We're talking about more understanding between the countries concerned. And here we have seen over the last couple of years' progress. I'm rather optimistic when I look on it. We have a summit in Trieste with the countries uh, concerned uh, uh, at the level of prime ministers, where I hope we're going to see further steps in that direction. It is essential. It's essential from the political point of view, but it's also essential from an economic point of view. In order to attract the direct investments that uh, the Western Balkans so much need and in order to be integrated into the European value chain, or for that's a global value chain, it is more interesting with a market which is functioning a bit better of the 20 million people living there rather than the individual countries by mm-hmm. themselves. So that's one example of how the European Union and the US, and perhaps I focused particularly on the European Union, have played an important role in order to provide for stability, security. In the Western Balkan, I should add one point, perhaps, before I go over to Ukraine, and that is one element has come into this discussion, and that is fighting terrorism and radicalization. Western Balkan is a bit of a source when it comes to foreign fighters in Syria, and therefore we are working hard with the within the EU, but also with our partners, in order to to see to how we can support them. Both when it comes to the returnees that are coming back from the, from the battlefield and how those should be handled, but in particular when it comes to radicalization in the countries concerned. And here, of course, we have experiences in the EU which are useful for that, for that discussions. And then we have also a fairly far reaching discussion uh, with our security services when it comes to the concrete security aspect of fighting terrorists also in that part of Europe. And with that, let me move over to another example of how we are I would argue that the European Union is playing a role in providing stability and security together with the United States, and that is Ukraine. And uh, uh, I would like to start with the events in Maidan and what came after it, and the immediate um, alignment, I would say, and coming together of the United States and and the EU in order to support the reforms that were so much called for by by the Ukrainian people. And... From an EU perspective, it's interesting, and I think generally that the the Maidan reaction was a reaction to a no, to a further integration of Ukraine into the EU, Mm -hmm. namely the free trade agreement, the extended free trade agreement that was underway being discussed. And When looking now on Ukraine today, I think the efforts that have been put, particularly by Ukraine itself, but also by by their partners, U.S. and and EU, has played a very important role in moving that country forward in the direction of a a more stable, secure, but also a country that can provide for a better uh, prosperity, more growth, better jobs, and the economy moving forward. Now, we haven't seen the full result of it yet, that's for sure. But when it comes to the framework for it, quite a bit has been made. And I would probably argue that, firstly, to, to commend the, the um, Ukrainian governments and the, the Ukrainian people and the civil society for, the, for their resilience and their willingness to move ahead here. But I would also argue that U.S., Europe together have been very helpful in seeing too that uh, the direction of the reforms has gone in the in the right way and what i'm thinking of concretely are the reforms of the economy in particular energy sector which has been substantial Uh, also when it comes to the business climate which also have been addressed not completely but direction is right also the recognition of corruption as being a major problem for ukraine and also where the government has worked in the direction and the the parliament and the RADA and so on, for getting into place the right framework in order to address those issues, and uh, and also taking the measures that comes with it. Uh, The asset declaration, for instance, which is very far-reaching, is one example of of that. and I would also argue that there's been a substantive, when it comes to the economy, the important elements that have been taken when it comes to the financial sector. And let say, setting to that the banking system functions better than it did before, and thereby providing for the economy to start to grow and move forward. There's also been quite a lot being done when it comes to the, how the, 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 the system of rule of law. Uh, I mentioned the corruption, which is still something that needs to be continuously addressed and still very important uh, challenge. But the reforms are underway, and reforms also are underway when it comes to judiciary, and it's underway also when it comes to the prosecution service, and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, I think that is, that is also, I, I would argue that these reforms would, uh, an important element of it is the support, but also the, the um, perspective. And that the perspective for Ukraine to come into and be a better part of the European market and also broadly the globalized market market has played a very important role. And the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement that I mentioned is an essential part. So that on the reform side when it comes to Ukraine. But as important for the developments of Ukraine and for the – I think also for what the U.S. and Europe has done has been our reactions to the aggression towards Ukraine. I think the, the, it was very, an essential element has been the unanimous condemnation of the annexation of Crimea, the illegal annexation of Crimea, and also the very clear um, condemnation of uh, the Russian action and support to, the, to what is happening in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, and the, what also comes out as a consequence, namely the sanctions. Uh, which uh, which has been important for showing also solidarity with Ukraine, but also <coughs> from the principal point of view, from the US and and the EU. And looking ahead, our continued support for the Minsk process will be essential. And uh, we know that that one calls for quite a lot of further improvement in order to see that should lead to what we would all like to see happening. Finally, let me bring up a third element where we are working for stability, security, and which for us is a a big challenge, and that is the migration refugee crisis. Uh, Globally, today, there are 64 million who are not living at home for reasons of uh, climate change or for other reasons. Uh, 25 million, approximately, are refugees in accordance with the Geneva Geneva Convention's uh, definition. Many of these uh, are in Africa, many would like to come towards Europe. And uh, for, for the European, for the EU, this, this came to a, a crunching point in 2014, 20, 2014 15, 16, uh, as a result of the awful things that is happening in Syria, and the fact that uh, the 5.2 million Syrians that are living outside Syria as refugees Quite a number of them started to move in the direction of Europe, uh, up through the through the Balkan route, as we called, out through Turkey and so on. Uh, and this this has led to a recognition that uh, uh, there is a need for the European Union together to act and to use the European Union's instruments in order to address this. I think that's been a recognition by individual member states, and I know one very well: Sweden who has been very open to. Uh, asylum seekers from, from these countries and other countries, uh, recognition that it's not enough that we have our policy. We need to see to that we do this together. And why? Because in the European Union we have today the free movement, which means that my kids can go and they can, ask, they can apply for a job in any other of the EU member states. And suddenly border controls came up. And there was a sense that this could, if it want bend badly, unravel. Apart from the fact that there was a sense also that when it comes to asylum, seekers in particular, but migration more generally, there is a need to also see to that there is some kind of burden sharing between the different parties in the EU. There are different views on that, but that issue came up as well. And the result of all this is that we have landed on a, an approach where, on the one hand, we are looking internally on how we can address it with the policy measures that needs to be there for establishing more of a common asylum policy. And that is presently underway. It's going to be very, very difficult and, 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 and uh, politically difficult process because there are different views. So that's one element. Second element was a substantive strengthening of the external borders in order to uh, guarantee for the member states that the external border of the EU is a real external border. And that is underway right now with the setting up of a, of a coast guard and border guard of the European level, which would have been unheard of 10 years ago, but today is a reality. And support efforts, in particular in the countries who are particularly um, the object of this, Greece and Italy. And the third element is to uh, address the issues of the refugees outside the EU, in particular see to that we are limiting the number of people who are putting themselves on this perilous route and risk dying on the Mediterranean. We're talking about thousands of people doing that, and, and that is unacceptable. Now, the, the, the form that that takes, and that's where I come in, is uh, concrete support to transit countries and to those who are hosting refugees, but also mm-hmm. to countries who are the sources of this kind of migration. What we're talking about here is the substantive support to Turkey, who are doing a great job in hosting 2.7 million Syrian refugees, who are letting these refugees also have access to the health service, who are opening their schools, and also opening part of the labor market. And we are supporting that by by altogether 3 billion euro for the Syrian refugees in Turkey. We do it also when it comes to Jordan and Lebanon who are taking also a substantive share here of 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 efforts. And we are doing it in, in terms of Libya right now, in trying to help and see into that the situation of those who are in Libya, migrants or refugees, situation becomes better. We're also helping them to go back to the countries they come from if they wish to do that. That's very difficult given the situation in Libya for obvious reasons. And finally we are investing or intending to invest in particular, but are always investing in help in, in trying to um, provide for better growth opportunities in the countries from where many of the migrants come from. And here we're talking about Western Africa in particular. And we're doing that for, through setting up new instruments for attracting investments, but also for going in with the soft power of development assistance more generally in order to help with everything from infrastructure to social infrastructure to education, etc. But we should have no illusions. There will continue to be an interest and attraction to go to Europe. So somewhere down the road, I presume that we also will have a discussion on uh, migration more generally within the EU, which today, legal migration, which is today something which is a member state's competence for mm-hmm. most of the practical purposes. I've been too long, but I think i stop here, Just uh, and I hope I have outlined a bit of what I think are essential elements of where we are intervening for security and stability, and where there is something where we do also together to a large extent with the United States. I look forward to do that also in the future.
0: Good. Well, thank you so much for your uh, very uh, comprehensive overview of, of your work. I'm... Um, I think Americans sometimes have an image of the European Commission as a rather rigid bureaucratic operation. And it's obvious that um, certainly the um, uh, work of your group has expanded considerably uh, over the uh, last few years. Uh, appreciated the comments you made on specific countries there's a few countries you didn't mention that I'm sure we'll get into when we get into the uh, questions but now let me turn it over for a brief comment from Ben and then we'll go to Charles uh,
2: uh, thank you very much director Danielson it was indeed very very interesting and comprehensive um, yeah a few, a few comments and, and questions I guess I um, I I very much appreciate the fact that you emphasize the importance of transatlantic cooperation between the United States and Europe. And I think, indeed, it's key uh, when we look at the challenges that we're facing today from, obviously, ISIS, the migration crisis, or the the rise of a resurgent Russia uh, and and, and helping the the transition in in Ukraine and keeping firms on on sanctions linked to the Minsk process, as well as fighting uh, corruption. And I would add, and and this, this will lead me to the question of enlargement that it is also important, I think, to always uh, uh, remind in these times where you can have misunderstanding and sometimes differences between the United States and the European Union that the very existence of the European Union uh, and its success is, is really one of the greatest success of American foreign policy since the Second World War. In, in a way, it is also almost the justification of America's role in the world. Um, and, and thanks to uh, NATO support uh, and American presence uh, in, in Europe, uh, we, you know, The second part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century has been quite different from uh, the one before. It, it sounds maybe obvious to us today, but you know, if you take in, in the long spectrum, it is, it is not that obvious. So I think it is really important to, um, to remember this. Um, and, and I would add that in, in this respect, uh, the question of enlargement has been one of the most spectacular successes of the European Union in the last uh, 25 years. Um, it is interesting that, you know, in, in a town where questions of regime change or democracy promotion, human rights promotion have been so much discussed and so controversial in the last uh, two decades, in a way, the European Union, let me uh, allow myself to be a bit controversial, has been one of the most the most successful agents of regime change, in a way, uh, in Eastern uh, Eastern Europe in the '90s and and the uh, and the 2000s, and with the successful uh, integration of uh, Central and Eastern European countries. Of of course, we still see today with countries like Hungary and Poland some forms of, of tensions and, and regression. Uh, but I mean, once again, you know, if you look at the uh, the broader scale, uh, the mix of, of NATO integration and support and the uh, support, as you mentioned, on the fight against corruption, development assistance, technical assistance uh, that is provided by the European Union. That maybe sometimes, you know, is as long as and technocratic and not very exciting when you look at it, but so fundamental in in anchoring the rule of law and, and liberal democracy in these countries. I think it is a very important um, aspect. Now, that being said, I do you think today we are at a turning point? We're at a turning point because. Uh, the European Union has been facing a, a mix of crises converging at the same time between the euro crisis, uh, the rise of uh, Russia, uh, terrorism, and the migration crisis that really strike, I think, a, you know question at the, at the heart of its model. Does it want to be an international organization, uh, loose international organization between the member states constantly expanding? Or uh, does it consider itself a political union with common interests? and and a common uh, vision, and and the tools to be able to uh, have a common economic policy, with maybe a finance minister for the eurozone, with maybe budgetary control and coordination, with maybe euro bonds, it they want to have borders. And borders mean two things. It means set borders, definitive borders, when we say enlargement is over, and now this is who we are, this is where we are, and obviously the ability to defend these borders. Um, And you did mention. Uh, the, uh, the, the means uh, that have been put both in, both in the quote, quotas on migration, but also in, in reinforcing Frontex. And I think um, this, a lot of people here, and even in Europe, are not aware of the efforts that have been made in the, in the last Europe. year, uh, both in terms of, uh, of, uh, of, of means and, and, and resources that have been allowed to, to the new Frontex um, since the, the migration crisis. Um, and, and I think it is so key, I would, I would quote two examples. I mean, you mentioned Ukraine, obviously. And I think one of the the causes of the Ukrainian crisis early on, uh, when Yanukovych turned down, under Russian pressure, the, uh, uh, the CFTA, the free trade agreement with the European Union, I do think there was also not maybe some complacency, but a, a lack of strategic vision on the European side, because the both for the Ukrainian people that went to the street in Maidan, and for Russians, the DCFTA was not seen as a uh, economic agreement. It was seen as some, something much more political, it was something as seen as existential, as a way to anchor Ukraine in the West and and progressively transform the country. Uh, as for the Russians and for Yanukovych, it was seen as a threat. For Ukrainian people, it was seen as an extraordinary opportunity to get rid of corruption and and get closer to Europe and the United States. And I think on the European side, it, it was. Uh, it, Sort of went under the radar. It was not seen with the same sort of strategic vision. Uh, it was mostly calculated as you know economic uh, cost benefits and and, and potential gain. Um, and 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 this is exactly where uh, you know we, we have to decide whether we want to uh, really have a foreign policy, really want to have a common, common foreign policy with common interest, and 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 deal with our neighborhood that way, or if we u- only use these these tools as uh, as uh, sort of. Technical instruments to uh, gain growth, and the second question I think that you mentioned, but you mentioned the migration crisis, and I'm sure that Craig was referring to this when he said that some issues were not mentioned, uh, is obviously the the question of Turkey. Ah. Um, sorry to be. Uh, I was actually thinking of Moldova, but oh. <laughs> okay, he's fine. <laughs> um, and, and obviously, I think Turkey uh, is is the essence of that question, um, is whether. Uh, and I would say, you know, even putting aside the, 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 the current regression that we're seeing uh, under Erdogan, uh, the very question in general, in essence, of Turkey's um, candidacy within the European Union uh, asks the question: Do, what are, what are, the borders of Europe? What defines European Union? What it is to be a European? Uh, is 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 the European Union uh, destined to constantly expand uh, at the risk of being looser and looser? politically or is there going to be a moment when we say stop this is uh, these are our borders and uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean having bad relations with turkey by the way but considering it's a strategic partner with whom we have sometimes common interests sometimes political tensions and uh, and but that we deal with as a as a neighbor and i think the very definition of otherness, alterity, the idea that you have neighbors who are not destined to be members, is is really what defines a political entity. So I would I would end my uh, my comments here. And, and once again, thank you very much for uh,
0: Thank you so much, uh, Ben. I think you've already set up a very uh, rich discussion for uh, uh, the next phase. Charles?
3: All right, yes, and uh, thank you, Director Danielson, for coming to visit us. Um, well, I, I thought I'd inject maybe uh, uh, briefly a few notions of U.S. interests in, into this discussion uh, because of my, my reflex in, in listening to uh, all of these details about EU enlargement uh, is that there's a, a broader theme also, which is when we look at all of these uh, states at the periphery of the European Union, they're, they're, they all are a sort of battleground between the West and anti-democratic forces. And so, uh, from a US perspective, that makes EU enlargement, or at least uh, the defense of this uh, cultural uh, and value zone, something that is very much in our interests. And we see this very dramatically in terms of a lot of just basic values of what a society should be and what it should look like. Um, It's very dramatic, of course, in the case of Turkey, but we also see it very much in the case of Ukraine. And um, in that regard, I think it would be very interesting if uh, Director Danielson could comment a little bit more on the issues of uh, corruption in Ukraine, because we also see this as a uh, growing factor, be it uh, Turkey or all of these border states, um, and, and how will that be dealt with? It's been a uh, an important criteria in terms of whether a, a country can join the EU or not. Um, so I, I, I think that's uh, important. Um, now, of course, in this post-Brexit environment, uh, talking about EU enlargement also might seem... Um, like something that's well, you you laugh. I mean, it's sort of well. We, we need to be defending what we already have, not talking about enlargement. Uh, it's a challenging environment, but I think if we think of it as as the frontier, where we are uh, are pushing back against uh, anti-democratic forces, then there's a real convergence between U.S. and EU interests and. Um, one of the questions that was asked in terms of this session is, what can the U.S. do to support our allies in the region? And I think there, um, one could certainly imagine closer cooperation with Director Danielson's operation and um, in, uh, in in being more involved in the nitty-gritty of this country-by-country country. Uh there's also no doubt a dynamic, and perhaps you could comment on that, between NATO enlargement and EU enlargement, because this is also uh, kind of the same uh, battleground. Um, it's it's very easy, of course, to think about the negatives in what's going on in Europe. Benjamin mentioned some of the historical positives, and I think that's very important, and um, we should really, have no qualms about asserting our role as a civilizing force also, because what's going on on the periphery of Europe right now is outrageous. These are not small disputes, but very fundamental uh, issues, and uh, we need to push back vigorously against what is really an enemy force that's attacking on various sides in various ways. Uh, And um, so EU enlargement is both defense and offense, but I think we should really look at it in terms of defending Western values.
0: So, um, turn it over to you in just a second. Let me, let me go back to the question that, uh, well, in some ways, both Ben and Charles raised. Um, if you would have uh, been in your position 15 years ago and come to Washington we would have probably centered this whole discussion largely around either the Balkans or Turkey. I mean, Turkey then was the uh, great aspirant for uh, EU membership. And in fact, 15 years ago, you could go to Turkey and you could actually see real progress in terms of uh, civilian control over the military, uh, economic reforms, etc. cetera. Um, since then, I'd argue not just politically but also economically, it's gone backwards. Um, you have uh, you had great families then that dominated the economy. You have different great families now that are starting to dominate the economies. You've they've gone backwards on uh, press uh, freedom. They've gone backwards on rule of law. Um, at what point? At what point? Does a value-based, principled entity like the European Union say, enough? If you go any farther in this direction, any hope of even continuing this conversation is over.
1: <laughs> Good question. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. for the. I will comment on them um, to my best um, ability. Now, I um, think you, you mentioned the issue of, uh, of EU more generally, and direction and um, reflection. Um, two comments on that one. I think the the one issue that always has been in the EU since its beginning was uh, has been the uh, the direction of um, of um, uh, whether one should uh, further consolidate whether one should further go towards a stronger political cooperation. Um, And I remember vividly when when we negotiated our membership, which we did because it was in Swedish interest. We saw it as something which was essential in order to have influence over European policymaking, and we saw it as essential for our economic interests. And I remember then in those days that there were discussions in the EU that said, no, no, that's going to be difficult and take time because – it will lead to more difficulties for the existing EU to do the necessary deepening that we would like to see. Mm-hmm. I think that will be with us and uh, will be there for eternity, that kind of discussion. Um, uh, so, so that's one, one comment on it. The second is that, uh, as it stands right now, it is interesting that you raise it because I think we will have a discussion of this kind going forward towards December, in fact. Mm. And uh, that has to do with uh, uh, Brexit on the one hand, it has to do also that there is a need I think, a sense among member states to have that kind of of discussion. So what should we do when it comes to the monetary union? How much further should we go for those who are members? Uh, what can we do in terms of the social Europe? And social Europe is not socialist Europe. It has to do with issues like uh, like um, labor conditions. It has to do with, with other elements of that kind. Mm-hmm. There will also be a reflection about Europe in terms of the global role, and you, you mentioned it, where part of it already is there. There is a global strategy, for those who are interested, it's worthwhile reading, in fact, which sets out fairly clearly what kind of ambition Europe has on the global, on the global spectrum, and which has to do with issues such as supporting uh, stability, security, resilience, but also uh, the, the, the kind of lighthouse that we are in terms of values and trying to make the point that for sustainable stability, it is a good thing to have rule of law. It's a good thing to fight corruption. It's a good thing to have democratic institutions. So I think that's also an important element in it, Uh, and other elements of that kind. Where this discussion will land, I don't know. But I presume that uh, the outcome of the first round of the French presidential election, uh, which points in the direction of a candidate who has a very strong interest and keen interest in, in Europe and France in Europe is going to play a very important role in that context, uh, together with, of course, the other the other the other the other member states. Um, and and you pointed rightly to that. In the, when we talk about foreign policy, I think the what is essential for for EU, as for any country, is the relations with their closest neighbours because that's mm-hmm. where, where you show whether you are able or not able to project the kind of policy that you would like to see being uh, being projected. And uh, for the EU, there are two ways of doing that. One is the enlargement policy, which uh, clearly has been successful, and I agree with you on that. And I would argue clearly is successful when it comes to the Western Balkan, although the timeline is slightly different. And it is the neighborhood policy which is less demanding because the countries concerned are not suggesting that they would like to become members, but which is about finding common interest with our neighbors and then trying to pursue it very clearly. And one interest from the EU's point of view is, I come back to it because you mentioned it and it is essential, is clearly the issue of what I call sustained stability, which is rule of law, democratic institution, a vibrant vibrant civil society, as one element in that kind of dialogue. Now, um, I agree on U.S. interest. I think we are very, very interested in seeing, we have already a substantive cooperation with the United States. I mentioned Ukraine and technical assistance and all things we do together there. Uh, We have it across the region, in fact. I, I would say Western Balkan is a telling examples where so we work very, very closely hand-in-hand in, hand in supporting the, the, the process there. And, of course, U.S. is in the NATO mission in Kosovo and so on and so forth. Uh, we very much look forward to continuing that and, uh, and also being able to, to work together, uh, not only when it comes to concrete projects, but also in the policy dialogue and how we can, how we can jointly look on, on the challenges uh, and at how, we shall, how we shall address it. Uh, one element in that context is clearly corruption. And uh, that is something which is not only in Ukraine, but uh, across quite a lot across the board. And I think the argument that, that we jointly put forward and which tends to have quite a lot of traction is not only to make the point that this is bad for the country and it's bad for rule of law and it's bad for citizens, but it's also very bad for the economy. If you go out and ask uh, those who are actors in the economy, uh, for instance, those who would like to invest in the countries concerned, uh, corruption comes up very, very high on the list why they are reticent to go in. And I think that argument is a strong one which which uh, we at least are going to continue to to follow very strongly. Now, clearly there has been a link between NATO and Larsson, and I see Bruce Jackson here in the, in the audience, and, and it's clear that the the uh, um, Europe-Poland-free was an instrumental element in the um, where NATO enlargement played an important role, and the eu enlargement played an important role and went hand in hand in fact, NATO enlargement came a bit earlier i think for many of those countries who were concerned and we see also the importance now in the western Balkan. I think the steps on Montenegro is a very very important step and it's going to play an important role for the future steps and development of of that particular country now on Turkey uh, yes um, a, a challenge, a challenge for Turkey, a challenge for, for us. Uh, uh, our relations uh, are, I think one needs to have a sort of perspective what the relations are. We have uh, the accession process, which is something that Turks have very much wanted to be part of. And what we have said from the European point of view and from Turkey, that we have gone into that process by saying, yes, we should negotiate uh, Turkey's accession to the EU, but this is not a guarantee that Turkey will accede to the EU. That is something that we take a decision on once the negotiations are over. Now, so that is how that process has developed. The good thing with that process is that it has been very much, I think, an re- important element for the reforms yeah. in, in Turkey that you, that you mentioned. And it also provides us for a, with an instrument where we can discuss issues relating to values, issues relating to, to uh, rule of law and other elements within that context. Now, if you look on the latest development, we do reports every year on, on the work where, where the countries who are negotiating with us or are in this enlargement policy, where they are in the development in terms of, uh, of rule of law, in terms of corruption, and so on. It's clear that when it comes to, to functioning of judiciary, when it comes to uh, freedom of expression, Turkey has moved uh, backwards. And we uh, uh, say, I think, backtracked, I think, is the term we use. And, uh, and uh, uh, we haven't seen improvement since uh, that report, which was in December. Um, I think we will have discussions on Turkey coming up. Uh, uh, there, is a, there are ministerial meetings coming. I think there's going to be also dialogue with Turkey about it. Uh, and and uh, so that, that is what we have for the future. But I think we need to remember when it comes to Turkey that uh, there are essential interests that uh, are there. Uh, economic, Turkey is fully integrated into the global value chains, mm-hmm. but in particular the Euro value, European value chain. It's a fundamental hub when it comes to energy. It is an uh, important partner when it comes to fighting terrorism. It is also important when it comes to issues relating to the migration side. Uh, where we, we have a, a close partnership now in particular on that issue. So there are lots of issues of that kind and that, that leads me to another element of our relation that we also have that. So that is happening on the same time. And We have just put on the table in fact uh, on the economic side a suggestion for extending the existing relation with Turkey when it comes to trade which is a customs union and see whether we could extend that to also cover other areas in order to In both interests, each to that our markets are more open. Um, We have about 20 minutes left. Uh, We're going to
0: turn to the audience now. There's a question over, let's take these two here, and then we'll go to the back of the room after that, and then we'll go to this side. Yeah, Yeah. and then the man in front of him will be the next one. Thank you very much. My name is uh, Chris. I'm from Germany studying European studies right now. And I um, also half Serbians, so I'm really happy about those positive news from the Balkans. However, um, I'm a bit wondering that you're not discussing about Trump's presidency and what challenges it will bring with him in the Trump administration. I think we still do not know what his great plan is and also his statements in his campaign that EU is not so important. Of course, it's not changing. He's learning a lot, I hope. And um, I just would like to know what do you think? How we can cooperate with Trump or with the Trump administration? Thank you, Bruce. I just like to ask a little more about the logic of the enlargement policy, as you described it. Taking uh, Commissioner Hans' question to the foreign ministers about, isn't it time to cut the negotiations with Turkey? This would make two big countries that are going to either decide to leave or fail to get in in a a one-year period. At the same time, you're using the instrumentality of of the countries in the Western Balkans and instruments of the EU to entice them to reform and come closer to Europe. How do we explain to the European and American voters that this revolving door lets valuable, rich, powerful members out but won't let unqualified, poor, and defenseless members in? It creates a queue for them sort of a, a funny revolving door where the desirable members can leave and the undesirable <laughs> members are are to the door. <laughs> okay, and then in the very back, uh, yeah. Then we'll turn it back here.
4: My name is Veronica. I'm from the Embassy of Moldova. I would like to uh, first uh, thank uh, Mr. Kennedy for flagging Moldova in the discussions that uh, were ongoing. It is always nice to know that we have uh, people having in mind my- Mine, Moldova. I would like to kind of ask um, where uh, we are curious to know uh, from your fellow panelists where would be Moldova placed on the priority list in the US EU cooperation in Southeast Europe?
0: Okay, great. great. So, you, Trump, uh, the logic of uh, Brexit,
4: Turkey, yeah.
0: and then finally and then a more Moldova. specific one <laughs> where does Moldova? F- yeah. Yeah. In the queue, I was actually found it refreshing that you didn't bring up President Trump, uh, because usually that's all we talk about. But go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. Uh, no. But to be honest, I, uh, I've been around here in Washington now. Yesterday, I will do it tomorrow, today and and tomorrow, and uh, discussed uh, uh, the policy that we're discussing here, and uh, uh, I'm reassured. Uh, I see an engagement i see continues, uh, the discussions we had on western Balkan, the discussions we have also on ukraine has been uh, reassuring uh, so um, i think we look forward to continue to work with uh, with the american administration on on that on those issues uh, and that goes also when it comes to uh, the, the other challenges, uh, be it uh, issue of migration or be it uh, issues, uh, I came out of Egypt very recently, be it issue of Egypt or be it the other partners, partners that we are working with. Bruce, yeah, um, I can see where, I mean, it can it can look like a very door. Um, I think the Brexit was not anything that anybody looked forward to, apart from those who voted for it, and uh, now we have it, and, uh, and that is something that needs to be handled. It's going to be a complex, complicated process. It's going to be painful for for the United Kingdom, and it will be painful also for the EU. And it's the first time we do it. So uh, it's, uh, it's uh, um, I think that's a big difference from the enlargement policy in a sense, so I don't think we can see them side by side, so to say. Uh, but uh, but it's true that that is that is going to be a big challenge um, uh, for for the for the EU and something which will occupy our minds for the coming two years, which is the timeline for for these negotiations to to run. Uh, as Turkey. Yeah, you read Financial Times today, and uh, uh, there are discussions going on, I think, uh, in member states, uh, also within the Commission, uh, on, uh, on um, what kind of, uh, how, what, what will be the future. And I think we will see that now developing in meetings that will take place in the coming weeks and months. Uh, um, I think what's going to be important for everybody is to see to that uh, uh, interests are being looked after. And uh, the interest, uh, there are fundamental interests of having very close and rich relations between Europe and, and Turkey. That, that goes without saying. Um, uh, on the Balkans, I think it's a different story. Because there, uh, we, we um, uh, I think from, uh, and you know that better than me, I mean, the, the Western Balkan was the major uh, security uh, challenge for Europe in the first half of the 1990s. Uh, It continued to be uh, fairly challenging in the remaining part of the 1990s, having a new outbreak in the end of the 1990s with Kosovo. And during this century, continues to be, I think, thanks God, very much on the radar screen when it comes to security stability. The instrument for providing that security stability, together with the NATO force in Kosovo, or for that sake, the mm-hmm. EU force in Bosnia, is the endorsement policy. Because that provides the anchor for the reforms for the countries concerned. It provides also the incentive for it. And that's, uh, that's why it's so essential. I would argue that, uh, uh, that by, by, by this policy, we are building up the resilience and the strength of the countries. So the description you have of defenseless, and I don't know what other adjective you used, I think if you look on where they are and how they develop, they are more resilient today. Uh, the economic development up till 2008 was quite positive. I would argue, however, that it was too much consumption and remittance. The development now in Serbia is very promising, and you see also economic development in some of the others going in the right direction. Now, on Moldova, priority... Uh, it is uh, Katarina Matanova who is here and Deputy Director General is working on a daily basis on Moldova. Uh, we are supporting very strongly the uh, the present government's reform efforts uh, together with IMF and together with the World Bank. Uh, and uh, it's clear that the challenge is substantial. You, you know it better than me. Uh, and and uh, but we look forward to continuing that those efforts. Uh, clearly, Moldova is uh, is a country which already has the. Legal framework for deep integration. We have visa freedom. So all the elements are there. Now it's just to see to that the elements in Moldova becomes the right one to get uh, prosperous private sector, direct investments coming in, and not least important that Moldovans choose to remain in Moldova and see their future there rather than to leave in order to get to search the future at another place.
0: Ben, did you have a quick comment on the Trump
2: yeah, the sure. question on, on on Trump, I think, obviously, there's been uh, some comments made by the president on the European Union, on Brexit. But I think beyond the, the sort of heated rhetoric, it's important to see, actually, the paradoxically, the continuity with the last administration. Uh, you did have already President Obama talking about free riders and being very critical of European allies. And the reason I'm saying this is I do think, in general, there is a tendency in the United States to – uh, want Europeans to, uh, to do more on defense. Uh, this has been, you know, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates already was very, uh, uh, uh tough on Europeans on the, on the 2% issue. And I, and I think to a large extent, it, 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 this new presidency has to be seen as an opportunity for Europeans to, to unite, to deepen their cooperation on, especially on foreign policy, on political issues, on, on monetary issues. So, um, instead of treating, <laughs> The, the president and the presidency as, as sort of an exception when it comes to transatlantic relations. I think there is a larger element of, of a deeper trend when it comes to how to see Europe. And, and once again, this is something we have to live with. And this, this should be seen as a political opportunity.
0: Yes. Questions over here. One here, one back there, and one over there. So we'll take those three.
1: Uh, Youssef Bahami, just a question regarding the fact that Europe now is a new shape with the Brexit. How do you foresee the uh, pan-Europeanism that includes other countries like the UK, like Norway, like Switzerland and the European Union with the dimension that English is no longer the first language of the European Union. It's only spoken by uh, Ireland and uh,
2: Malta. Thank you. My Director Danielson, you spoke earlier a little bit about the reform efforts in Albania, and I was just curious because I think a lot of people would say that uh, like chapters 23 and 24, of the IKEA, are sort of the biggest hurdle to Albanian accession, so I was just curious if you could elaborate a little bit on the specifics and of what you, uh, the EU working on and what you think a success would look like in that scenario.
0: And please explain to us what (laughs) 23andMe. Ambassador, there we go.
4: Thank you. Um, Please ignore the British accent for the time being. (laughs) Um, I'm not here in an official capacity, but I was previously the British ambassador to Georgia. Um, Craig somewhat set me up for the question because I believe you said that the neighborhood um, countries are not looking for membership, but of course that's not the case. I didn't say that. Oh, okay, then I misunderstood. Um but, but you what I very said
1: was that the neighborhood policy Okay. – not about membership.
4: Okay, but for the members of that um like countries like Georgia, for them it very much is about membership and that is their ultimate goal. And you said very eloquently that for the Western Balkans, that roadmap leading to enlargement is both the anchor and the incentive for those reforms. So um, it's partly a question of whether you think post-Brexit, once all that has shaken down, whether there might be renewed impetus for enlargement again, in the sense of what the two commentators have said, that this is a frontier battle of values. And if the EU is seen to choke when it comes to a country like Georgia, which has done everything that we have asked of it, what message does that send to other countries that might be looking to see does Georgia get um, get there and if it doesn't is it too risky for us to follow down that path or will Russia do take bites out of our territory as well but I also had another question because I don't want to be defined just by Georgia I thought um, Mr. Haddad made a bigger point about the EU stepping up more broadly on foreign policy looking to the south, for example, I'm really struck by how there is still, as far as I can see, no serious debate within the EU, not just about limiting the impact of the Syria crisis, dealing with the humanitarian costs of that, helping countries in the region deal with the outflow, but actually dealing with the Syria crisis itself. Um, What can the EU do to actually intervene in Syria? Does it always have to be, if the US doesn't do it, Nobody else can.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you. So, three good questions to finish up with.
4: Okay. Thank you. Well,
1: starting up then with uh, the broader European context, the uh, European Economic Area, which consists of Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, Switzerland, who has its specific relations with the with the EU, being part of the of the um, free movement, and uh, and uh, then of course. Uh, Brexit, uh, and what that leads to. Well, on Brexit, I don't want to speculate. On the others, uh, the structures are are fairly well known, and uh, I don't see anything that is going to change there, which means that uh, for Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, they will continue to follow the developments in the EU when it comes to what is called the internal market, which is the free movement of goods, services, capital, and people, and be fully part of it. Uh, That has worked very well over the last 25 years. I was part of negotiating that because Sweden was very much part Mm -hmm. of it to begin with, and uh, I think it's going to continue in that that juncture. Switzerland, it's a bit more complex because there there we have a a number of agreements which part of them will have to be looked on, Uh, and I think there it's going to take a bit more time how we're going to adapt them as we are moving ahead. Uh, So I don't see a problem here. Uh, or any issue that will, will be complicated, complicating. There is another discussion going on, and, and I think neighbor to the right mentioned it, and that is uh, you know, the whole issue of concentric circles, of whether there are some countries who would like to do more together, or some others that would do less together. And on that point, just to say that the European Union is not a the hegemon. There are uh, areas, important areas, where only some member states are part of it. Most prominently, the Economic Monetary Union. Another one is the Schengen Corporation, which has to do with uh, the passport-free movement within the, within the EU. And you also have the whole issue of the banking union, which is also limited to not all member states, and so on and so forth. And we have just now a very interesting discussion on cooperation when it comes to defense, and that is particularly in defense industry cooperation, where uh, not all member states are taking part, uh, and that is natural, and that is what I think we're going to see in the future. Now, on the Albania and Chapter 23, 24, well, in very short, what we have done in order for practicality is that the legal mass of EU commitments that you need to take on when you become a member, we have put that into various chapters. And Chapter 23 and 24 has to do with the issue of rule of law, democratic institutions, fighting corruption, fighting international organized crime, police cooperation, fighting terrorism, those kind of issues. And we have said that in the process that the Western Balkan countries are, this is something that needs to be addressed first thing in the negotiations. Mm -hmm. And why? Because it's only when you have those structures that you really can function as a member state. And uh, in terms of Albania, the reforms of judiciary that is underway is essential. And that is one element together with the fight against corruption that is ongoing and lots needs to be done together with public financial management, which is essential, together with reform of public administration. All of that comes into that context. So, so, so that's where that one is. Uh, is, 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 is. Georgia, membership. I think the issue of membership is not on the agenda for the European Union and I think politically it's not going to be on the agenda for the European Union for a foreseeable future. So the policy framework that exists is the one we have, and that is quite substantial. Uh, The awful DCFTA, which stands for a Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement, has a huge and rich content, and what Georgia needs to do now is to see to that that is fully implemented. That will provide for Georgia full access to the internal market, with some exceptions, being agriculture, for instance, and some other elements. But for practical purpose, more or less full access, which means that you will have a substantive driver for prosperity in Georgia. And in addition to that, the, the visa liberalization just agreed, will open up for much more of people to people. And you will also have elements concerning investments Financial structures, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which will come as part of it. So, I think it's very important. And I I'm was in Georgia recently. I met with the Prime Minister and Minister, and I made the point that it is important to be realistic and focus on what is essential now to see this implementation happen. That will strengthen the resilience of Georgia, and that will make Georgia more prosperous and thereby withstanding pressure from others, be it outside that country. On the issue of Syria. Uh, We see our role as it stands right now to primarily support the awful situation of Syrian refugees, be it outside or inside Syria. And we try to do as much as we can there in terms of humanitarian assistance, in terms of other means. And the other element that we see as our primary primary role is to support the UN-led process. And we do that through being very active. And The most recent example was the conference in uh, in, uh, Brussels on the 5th of April, overshadowed by the terrible chemicals attack, but very important when it comes to the outcome, which uh, when it comes to the policy line that was uh, close to unanimity among the members at the conference, uh, uh, without mentioning anybody, uh, on the the need to move forward in support of Stefan de Mistura, the UN-led process, the Geneva talks, mm-hmm. and see to that that is the one that will deliver the... the um, uh, um, the genuine transition process that is essential that in order to see to that refugees can come back reconstruction can start and all the rest that comes with it quick uh, final comment uh, ben
2: on, on on syria i wanted to to follow as well i, I completely agree with your point i think uh, we'll see what comes from this administration the last few steps have been promising but the previous administration i think here has treated the Syrian crisis as a humanitarian disaster and tragedy, whereas for Europe, it's different. It's it's actually a strategic and existential threat. Uh, it is not for the United States. Um, and it is because of terrorism, because of refugees, because of Absolutely. the rise of populism in Europe. Absolutely. And I think uh, Europeans have had a strong message on Syria, but they mostly try to manage and contain the crisis at home rather than have a real strategy, apart from the humanitarian aid, I completely agree with that, having I mean, a real political, even military strategy uh, in, in Syria. And I think Europeans together could have done more to maybe work on safe zones. I think that what the Trump administration did after the, the use of chemical weapons uh, in Idlib a couple weeks ago could actually have been done by uh, Europeans. I mean, it was a very limited strike, uh, with means that are completely available to the French and the Brits, for example. Um, and, and I do think, you know I'm a bit provocative here, that after the, the famous red line a few years ago, uh, it would not have been completely impossible for, for some European countries to act on their own and maybe try to force the hand of the Obama administration. So, And, and I think there's, there's a lack of strategic Im- imagination in Europe uh, on this. Uh, and, and we do expect too much from, from Americans, uh, especially when we've seen how reluctant they
0: were. Yeah. You have one minute left, Charles, because if we're not out of here by 12, 15, or 11.15, I'm in big trouble. You
3: know, this, this can be one sentence. I, I, I would just say that in terms of this activity of EU enlargement and, and what Dr. Danielson, I mean, sorry, Director Danielson is doing, uh, we, the, this uh, notion of incentivizing seems to me extremely interesting. We can think of you as the chief incentivizer of reforms in these countries.
0: Um, I want to thank the director, I want to thank the two panelists, and thank all of you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much.